Hello and welcome to the European Human Rights Advocacy Centre podcast. My name is Dr Alice Donald and like Eric, I'm based at the School of Law at Middlesex University. This podcast is intended as an audio companion to our written guide on instructing expert witnesses, which provides assistance to lawyers as to why, when and how to instruct an expert in international litigation. Today we're speaking to Dr John Clark, a forensic pathologist, about his experience of providing expert witness evidence to the European Court of Human Rights in a case concerning the 2004 Beslan school siege in Russia. I'll be asking John about the evidence he provided to the court and how he was instructed in providing this evidence by ERAC's lawyers. I'm also joined by one of those lawyers, ERAC's legal director, Jessica Gavron. And I should add that the facts of the case we're discussing today are graphic and distressing. Jessica, if I could start with you, could you tell us a bit more about the Beslan case and the events which led up to it? Hi, Alice. Uh, yes, of course. So the Beslan case concerned a very large-scale terror attack, and one that targeted a school, so most of the hostages were children. On the 1st of September 2004, a group of Chechen separatists occupied a school in Beslan, North Ossetia. The 1st of September is the first day of t- was the first day of term that year, and it's a, it's a celebratory day in Russia known as the Day of Knowledge. So more than 1,000 people, including more than 800 children, were gathered in the courtyard. They were forced uh, into the school gymnasium and held there for three days. Inside the gym, the hostages were crowded together. They were encircled by explosive devices on the floor and walls, and they were deprived of food and water for much of the time. Shortly after 1pm on the 3rd of September, so three days later, two explosions rocked the gym, killing and injuring many and setting off a fierce fire in the roof. The origin of these explosions is fiercely contested as to whether it came from a Russian intervention or an IED in the gym. But the result was that the Russian forces stormed the building and those hostages still alive and able to move were herded to another part of the school. And over the next few hours, the school was subjected to a major military assault by the Russian security forces, during which a variety of heavy weaponry was employed, including tank shells and RPOA flamethrowers. The surviving hostages um, were rescued by the end of the day, but 331 people were killed, including 186 children. ERAC, together with Memorial Human Rights Centre in Moscow, represented more than 350 applicants who had been hostages or whose relatives had died during the siege and who had been unable to get justice or accountability domestically. It was a really, uh, obviously, a really devastating case and also a very complicated case involving highly disputed facts and many different law enforcement, security and rescue agencies, as well as the military. Thank you, Jess, for sketching out those uh, almost unimaginably awful events. Um, Could I ask you then, why was it important to instruct an expert witness in this case? What was it that you couldn't get from other sorts of documentary written evidence? There was extensive evidence in this case that raised many issues and questions, including about things like the role and structure of the operational command, the decision to use and the use of indiscriminate weapons, and the failure to conduct thorough autopsies on the victims. On reviewing the evidence, there are a lot of what seemed to me to be failures and inadequacies in the 
planning and conduct of the rescue operation as a whole. But when you're litigating a case concerning, like this, a horrific terrorist attack on a massive scale that's clearly a nightmare for any government to deal with, I was very aware that I'm not an expert in counter-terror operations and any judgment of the court could potentially set precedents for how to respond to terror attacks or threats for 47 member states. Therefore, we needed some experts to provide an authoritative guidance on how these situations should be handled. Um, so in this case, we instructed two counter-terror experts and John uh, as an expert forensic pathologist to assess the approach to inadequacy of the provisions made for large-scale deaths and the autopsies undertaken. There seemed to me to be very little provision to deal with the potential numbers of deaths in a scenario like this where there are IEDs and tank shells and flamethrowers, all of which cause large-scale fatalities. And also, the authorities undertook external-only autopsies, principally for identification purposes, which meant they didn't remove or identify bullets or shell fragments or assess internal injuries, or in many cases, even establish the cause of death. And therefore, they were able to rely on the consequent lack of evidence to say they weren't responsible for any civilian deaths which was obviously extremely problematic to us as lawyers and seemed to me to be very disingenuous. However, again, I don't know what it's realistic to expect of authorities in this highly challenging scenario. So I relied on John to tell me. And John, can I turn to you then? Could you tell us a little bit more about what you do? And I, I understand that you have also been an expert witness in other fora for other international criminal tribunals, for example. Yes. Uh, well, thank you for inviting me to, to take, take part in this. Yeah, just, just a point of, of information. I was actually approached by a colleague of mine who had been initially approached by your director who thought I might be interested in doing this, this work. So, so this was really the, my first engagement with Iraq, uh, and I'm very grateful for the involvement. This is a general thing. I'm a, to explain what I am, I'm a forensic pathologist which means I'm a medical doctor who specialises in finding out how people die, uh, and particularly people who've died suddenly and unexpectedly. Uh, now, these tend to be deaths which are being investigated by a prosecutor or some other official whose role is to do that. For instance, in England and Wales, that official will be the coroner. In Scotland, it is somebody called the procurator fiscal, which is a system much more like the continent what would be relevant in, in the caucuses. Um, now, the deaths that we deal with are very wide-ranging. So they'll, they'll range from people who died of natural disease to uh, people with accidents, fires, falls, alcohol, drug abuse, child deaths, suicides, homicides, etc. So it's very wide-ranging. So as pathologists in the, in the UK, we build up a huge amount of experience or, um, on a vast range of deaths, which is, is different from other places. A lot of people think that forensic pathologists only deal with suspicious deaths and homicides, but that's far from, far, far from the case, and it's much, much wider expertise. Um, so for, for, for myself, I've been a forensic pathologist for about 35 years, uh, working in both Scotland and England, and I've probably formed about 16,000 autopsies in, in that time. So you get a big load of experience, etc. 
you, you mentioned my other um, interests, and yes, I have been involved internationally quite a lot, primarily, or, or the, the first part was within the Balkans in working for the ICTY, International Criminal Tribunal for former Yugoslavia, and um, giving um, being in charge of the mortuary in Bosnia and uh, giving evidence in the courts. And also given evidence for the International Criminal Court and for other, other agencies as well. So that's, that's my kind of background, come with a lot of experience from the UK and also in international experience. Just a word about post-mortem examinations, because this can be, it, it means different things to different people. The word post-mortem examination and uh, the terms, uh, post-mortem examination and autopsies are, mean the same. They're interchangeable. But what actually a post-mortem examination consists of can vary from one country to another. Generally, a post-mortem examination or autopsy will start with us getting a little bit of background information about the case. Then we will conduct what's called an external examination of the body. And in this, in a kind of standard case, we're looking at initially sort of general identifying features, you know, the person's build, the height, color of the hair, tattoos, scars, etc. Just building a picture. We will then look at changes which occur after death to establish how long they may have been dead. And then we'll start looking at injuries, external injuries and other findings. And really by the end of that, we should have some idea of, you know, reasonable idea of maybe why the person has died. Now, in a lot of countries, it, the examination will stop there and they won't do anything else. And that's just partly cultural, partly uh, financial, and just partly systems. But the, and that's not really to be recommended, but in this country, we continue the examination by doing internal examination. And that has the advantage of looking at internal natural disease, we're looking at internal injuries, we're taking, it gives us a chance to take blood samples, gives us a chance to retrieve items from the body. And these were clearly all very important in the Beslan cases. I deal, in, in my report I produced, I deal with the this issue of external examinations versus full autopsies quite, quite fully. So if any three sort of the report is available to, for people to read, but there's quite an instructive um, section about it there. And I think it's something to bear in mind because in the countries you deal with, very often it is just the culture to do just external examinations, which does miss a lot of, 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 um, of information. Anyway, after the examination, whether it's just an external or, or, or both, uh, pathologists will produce a post-mortem report. Now, post-mortem reports vary enormously in style from one place to another, from one pathologist to another, based on training, uh, just, just what the practice in their area, etc. Uh, some people are good at explaining things, others get bogged down in technical language, etc. etc. So it, it's, it's all quite variable. And one of the tasks, the best line cases, was to try and make sense of uh, some of these reports. So that's generally my expertise um, is to look at 
examining bodies and uh, interpreting, trying to discover why why they die. And John, what is expected of you as an expert witness in terms, for example, of your independence and impartiality? Yes. I'm always a little uneasy at this term expert witness because it, it tends to sort of um, imply somebody who's all-knowing and infallible. And it's really better, I think, to think of someone who has experience and expertise, which they can apply to a particular issue. Because as we well know from past uh, several months, expert witnesses will vary greatly, disagree with each other on a lot of, of, of matters, even over the same facts. So just because you're an expert witness doesn't mean to say you're, you're correct. But anyway, that it's, a, it's a standard term, and I think we know what we mean by it. Really, uh, it's our role, with our specialist knowledge and skills, to assist other people, whether it's in a criminal court or a civil court, whether it's in public health matters or whatever. And for me, it means using my medical expertise, uh, usually in the criminal courts, uh, on medical matters which needs a bit of analysis and explanation. Um, now, just in the same way any other expert would do, a firearms expert looking at um, firearm weapons and bullets, etc., uh, they're doing it the same way. But we do have a, 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 an important role, uh, and it's a very responsible role, you know, professionally responsible. Uh, we've got to analyse the evidence in a, in a kind of logical manner to acceptable professional standards trying to make it understandable to others and then offer an opinion um, on these matters. Now, this is, this is the hallmark of an expert witness, is that they are allowed to get, offer an opinion. Because all other witnesses in court uh, only speak to um, what they've seen, observations or, or some technical work they've carried out. And it's only expert witnesses allowed to, based on their experience, give an opinion. Um, now that's a, that's quite a major privilege, uh, but with it become comes duties, and we've got to be fair, we've got to be balanced uh, and impartial. We cannot hide information, you know, information which may be favourable to either side. We, we we've got to be open about it all. Um, we've got to make sure we don't spread, we don't extend outside our area of expertise. And that's a very, very important um, feature. And people do get caught out on that. Um, so for instance, I wouldn't opinion, give an opinion on details about firearms, etc. That's not my expertise. We've also got to keep up to date with scientific knowledge and with recommended professional standards. Uh, and I think one of the other roles of an expert witness is, is to um, present the findings in a clear and understandable manner. And that's what we're doing. We're interpreting for the benefit of other people. Uh, and I think that's a skill uh, and to, to make it understandable because we're, we're there supposed to be helping. Um, so in, my, in, in the Bethlehem case, my role was then to examine the medical evidence which I was given, um, go through it in, in detail, raise questions and make comments, um, 
And all that was done from an informed point of view, based on my own experience of, of post-mortem examinations, etc. And to some extent, and I think with relevant here, um, my knowledge of normal working practices in other countries, which does vary quite a bit, we've got to make some allowance and understanding of, of what goes on elsewhere. So that was my expert witness uh, there to interpret, help, make things understandable, uh, but we also have rules, obligations to, to keep ourselves doing that. This is an exacting uh, role. Um, if I could turn back to you, Jess, what did you ask John specifically? What questions did you ask him specifically? And what evidence were you able to give him to examine? We asked John a lot of questions, actually, partly to educate us and the court about the correct processes and, and partly to understand where the failures and, and inadequacies of the authorities lay. Uh, to help us raise those points in our legal arguments. So we began by asking about the best practice in this sort of situation according to international guidelines and whether re these required procedures were complied with in this case. We asked, as John has said, it was a very important um, aspect of the case, the, the investigation into the case. Only external examinations had been performed in the, in the case and we asked whether an internal examination, it can be required, and if not, when that can be dispensed with. Um, we asked if it's possible to ascertain cause of death when bodies are burnt, because a large number of bodies, 116, were found in the gym um, badly burnt, and, and the authorities had said that it wasn't possible to ascertain cause of death. Whether it's standard practice in a situation like this to remove bullets and shell fragments to allow for identification of weapons. And also um, whether it would be standard practice where RPOA flamethrowers were used to check for injuries that are distinctive to these weapons. These are weapons that create a pressure wave inside a building and collapse it from the inside out. And it causes injuries like collapsed lungs, fractures, ruptured eardrums. And, and John's answers, as he said, he's, he's totally impartial. He comes at it with his own expertise and he answers the questions not um, not with any bias to helping us, just to, to set out what the practice is and, and what would be required and, and where he saw failures. So it was very valuable to us. And just the evidence that you passed on to John, where did ERAC, where did you as lawyers get that from? That was the evidence in the case. So we passed on a number of autopsy reports. We also passed on um, in, uh, from the domestic there'd been a domestic case that had looked into, um, that had talked to the forensic pathologists who were involved in doing the autopsies. There was quite a lot of information about the, their own, questioning them about their own practices. So we passed that on to John so he could review that and see what he thought of their answers and their practices that they acknowledged. Um, we gave him quite a lot of evidence actually to sift through from the case this was a case with a huge amount of evidence and we wanted him to make as informed a, a report as he could but obviously you balance that up against the onerousness of what you're requesting from somebody. So John how did you go about um, examining this evidence? I know that you have in the past examined um, paper trails of evidence as well as bodies in the mortuary but what particular challenges did this body of evidence pose to you? 
Yes, well, as, as Jess said, I was they provided me with a lot of documentation, uh, which was um, quite forbidding to begin with, but uh, and much of it was translated material, uh, which I'll, I'll comment on later. So with all this, I knew not a great deal about the Beslan case, so I had, I had to sort of learn a little bit about it, uh, try and get a grip on on the events as recorded, the geography of the school, the timelines, uh, the names of various people, the names of various organisations which got involved, try and work out the number of people who died, because that did vary from one account to another, and where they died and where the bodies were found. So this was all not information which was was important for me to comment on. It was it, I just needed to get that background information so I could I could make a start looking at the medical aspects, and eventually managed to get uh, in, in my head what was all going on, and then and then I turned myself to the medical aspects, which is what I'd been asked to, and I was I'd been given a number of post-mortem reports, uh, five five to begin with, and then another twenty were provided later on. Uh, you may say that's only 25 out of 330. Uh, it's not not very many, but even they could tell a lot. I found the reports pretty tedious reading. Uh, they're very formulaic. Uh, there's a lot of what I would regard as unnecessary information in them, procedural information, uh, and a very rigid style of, of description of the findings which I think my experience is, is fairly typical of that part of the world. And sometimes it's difficult to pick out what is the relevant material in amongst all this other uh, unnecessary stuff. So um, that, that was a task in itself. A lot of the reports were very brief because the majority were just external examinations. Um, I mentioned about the reports being translated. I thought the translators had, had, had done a great job, but there's always ambiguities. Pathologists, any, any two pathologists will, will describe things in different ways, uh, even if they both speak the same language. And so what some words just don't translate. So I, you know, I make some assumptions and guesses and try to get them together. Then, having got that, I looked at, in some detail at the transcript of evidence which was given by two of the pathologists in one of the hearings. Uh, and I thought this was, was a very useful document because it did give a lot of insight into their approach to the incident, the constraints they were working under, of which I, I did sympathise, uh, although I, I felt they didn't protest enough. They could, they could have done a little bit more. They said they were being. You know, it was all determined by the legal authorities. Well, I would have thought that a group of pathologists could have some uh, say or, or um, put the case a little bit more strongly. And I did sympathise with them because even in the best of countries, the best of circumstances, to get 330 bodies suddenly arriving is a huge challenge for anyone. So, you know, it's not all criticism. It's, um, there is some understanding there. But also the, the, these the, the, this evidence they gave did give an insight into 
I've got really, you know, a, a sort of um, not very good understanding of some pathology processes uh, and um, particularly relation to fire deaths and, and injuries and it, and it exposed that. So I then tried to bring all this factual material, that recording of factual material together and then give what I was asked to do, in other words, give an opinion uh, on these various issues. So an opinion on um, the theoretically uh, theoretical likely causes of death in an incident like this, which would be a mixture of fires, explosion of, inju explosion of injuries, bullet injuries, etc. So it's likely there would be a mixture of these things. I then commented on the recovery of the body from the scene, which was a very, very poor exercise, rushed uh, and uh, inadequate. Then made my observations on the post-mortem examinations and the merits of the external examination and the lack of understanding of some of the, um, of the, the, the lack of um, appreciation of some of the findings. Um, and uh, then finally, quite a critical comment on a forensic report produced by the authorities, which I thought was full of errors and uh, misinterpretations. So that was really my, my, my um, way of doing it, getting a hold on, on, the, on the information, then um, trying to set it out in a logical manner and uh, express it in a reasonably understandable way for others to take forward. Jess, um, you obviously asked um, a number of questions at the beginning to John. When he then sent in his um, expert witness statement, was there anything that you hadn't anticipated? Perhaps anything that made you think you should argue the case slightly differently than you had originally intended? Uh, that's a good question. Not not exactly, but there were. John provided a lot of information. He, as he said, he's read a lot of evidence, um, and and he he did direct the points that we picked up on very much so. And so there were points that I might have made that I wouldn't, I didn't then make. And there were points that we drew out more forcefully. Um, so, for instance, it was interesting. To, there was stuff I, I just didn't know, like uh, it's not necessarily unusual to conduct externally only autopsies in large-scale disasters. But this would normally be in situations where the cause of death was known because it was a natural disaster or, for instance, a mass shooting where there's a single shooter and you know who's responsible. Beslan, however, was a massive crime involving the use of lethal force by opposing groups with heavily contested facts. And so it was a very different situation. Um, John also said that it's not, uh, it's not always possible for a pathologist to establish cause of death, but they always have to give a cause of death. So it could be, they could give unascertained as the cause of death, but they always have to provide some sort of conclusion. Um, and that was the sort of thing. He also said, for instance, in response to our question about RPOA flamethrowers and looking for distinctive um, injuries, that you wouldn't specifically do this necessarily. And in fact, some of those injuries that we had associated with them could also be caused by some of the other weapons used. So that wasn't a line that we then ran with. 
Um, so, you know, it, and it's useful that you don't necessarily get every answer going away because it, it shows the independence of the report. So that's not a, a problem. Um, but he was very helpful on the lack of preparation and planning, given the foreseeability of the high numbers of casualties and that there should have been suitable premises and refrigeration storage systems because it was summer. So that was a point that, that we hadn't thought of, the weather impacting. He was, uh, it was very helpful, his report, on the fact that the location and position of each person should have been recorded and the body numbered and ideally photographed. There were really, um, that, that was really not done. Uh, and, and actually the recording of the bodies was, was, I mean, it was a terrible thing. They, you know, some rooms, they just said the bodies were this, this high, highly stacked up. They didn't even give numbers. They didn't even give descriptions. It was so cursory. Um, he also took issue with the fact that the 116 bodies that were burnt in the gym, the authorities had said it wasn't possible to ascertain cause of death. John debunked that and said, actually, you can tell if somebody has been has been subjected to, to burning post-mortem or anti-mortem by checking their lungs for smoke inhalation. So that was very helpful. So yes, there was a lot of information and it did, it did direct our, um, our legal arguments because we obviously wanted to take the good points and not, not the weak ones. And um, in the course of this, did you need to go back to John to follow up, to clarify anything? I, I note that, for example, you sent some autopsy reports and then later you sent additional ones. Yeah, exactly. So in general, there were very few comments from us on John's report because Sometimes you might ask an expert to clarify something or pick up on errors. John is very experienced. You've heard him discuss his approach to his work. He makes an effort to, to write in a way that's comprehensible to lay people. So we had nothing like that. Uh, my concern in this case was that initially he'd only been given a very small number of reports. This was partly that we didn't want to overwhelm him because we didn't quite know what he'd find. and and. Um, you know, it, but given that he did find there were so many problems with these reports, I was then concerned that this could look like a selective example or handful. Um, and so we then did, did send him quite a few more, in which case we felt that, that even though it was still, as he said, a small number, it was representative. It was sufficient to be representative um, and that you could draw conclusions from it. And of course, um, we have the judgment in this case. It's known as Tagayeva and others versus Russia. Uh, it came out in 2017, so th 13 years or so after the events of the case. Ultimately, how important was John's expert witness report in shaping the conclusions of the court and the reasoning in its judgment with these multiple findings of a violation of the right to life? I would say that John's report was invaluable. The judgment found four violations of the right to life. So it found the failure to take reasonable measures to prevent the attack, failures of control and planning of the rescue operation, the indiscriminate and disproportionate use of lethal force, and relevant to John, the failure to conduct an effective investigation. Um, it, John's report was summarised by the court in the judgment, and it was clearly influential in its reasoning. The judgment in particular referred to the lack of planning and preparation with respect to the likely casualties, the failure to ascertain cause of death, and the failure to record the location of the victims' bodies within the school. And it, and it found many different um, elements of 
the failure to investigate. It found violations on, on different grounds, including um, the investigation into the bodies and the identification of cause of death. So yes, it was it, it was central to those arguments, I would say. Jessica Gavron, Dr. John Clark, thank you very much for joining me. And thank you for listening to the ERAC podcast. If you want to support ERAC's work, you can do so with a small donation. You can find the link to donate on the homepage of our website. That's ERAC, E-H-R-A-C, dot org, dot UK, or by visiting committedgiving.uk.net slash Middlesex slash public.